everyone, and thank you for joining into Collect Calls. This podcast is curated by students at Carleton University, working alongside with the Criminalization and Punishment Education Project, CPEP, in Ottawa, Canada. Before starting the podcast, we would like to first acknowledge the land on which we recorded this podcast and on which Carleton University is situated is the traditional, unceded, and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Nation. The following episode is an excerpt from an interview where we invited formerly incarcerated individuals and their families to speak on their experiences with the criminal justice system. Our goal in mind was to give these individuals a chance to speak for themselves, to voice their opinions on a system that has impacted their lives so greatly, rather than allowing for the same system to continue to speak for them. In further acknowledgement, we also want to recognize the overrepresentation of Black and Indigenous people in jails and prisons across Canada, one of the many lasting impacts of colonialism. We'd like to inform that the following podcast will be discussing sensitive topics and some vulgar language may be used. We caution listeners to be advised. If any of the following subjects trigger you, there are links in the description for counseling resources. Thank you. So to give you a little bit of background on our podcast, uh, we started it with our uh, community engaged sociology class. And um, we had the goal in mind to give people who have experience with the criminal justice system um, a chance to, to speak on their experiences without having, I guess, the criminal justice system speak for them. Um, so we okay. interviewed a lot of people um, who have been incarcerated and their family members. But after seeing one of your TikToks, you posted something about um, like, do prisons really keep people safe? And so I was inspired to ask um, your daughter, Madison, if I could interview you for the podcast, um, as I was interested to get your point of view. And Hannah did some background research on you, and, and I already knew prior because of Madison, but um, you, you did a lot of work with Elizabeth Fry. And like, what other stuff did you do, Hannah? Do you want to continue? Well, I saw that. Sorry, I did like a little dive on you. Um, but I saw that you um, did some graduate work in like forensic mental health and that you were an exec, you were a former executive director of the Elizabeth Fry Society. And like even like looking at like your Twitter account, seeing that you're really like up with um, current, like current um, issues like immigration and mental health and also the carceral system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I worked uh, before I was appointed. I worked for, um, I guess, about 35, 36 years first with young people, then with men, and then with women, with Fry. So I was with John Howard as well, and I did a bunch of, um, you know, as well as my waged work, did a lot of um, volunteer work with different groups and violence against women issues as well. So, yeah. Well, that's great. And I don't actually call it a criminal justice system. I call it a criminal legal system because we don't have justice yet in it. So, but yeah, no, I'm happy to, uh, very happy to be part of this and honored because, you know, I've had the privilege and responsibility of working and walking with many, many people who've 
been, you know, in the system. And um, as Madison may have told you, it's been a big part of our lives. You know, I don't even like the term allyship because, you know, for me, these are our friends. These are people who are part of our lives. And yeah. I agree. I think um, what you said about how there's no justice yet, that's a big portion of what we're trying to do just to to just bring that issue into light and say like what what is happening right now isn't working and people are being negatively affected by it and even people who represent the system are saying this like senators and like other politicians have noticed that like the system isn't working so i don't know this podcast mm-hmm. we're hoping just sheds light on that and gives different great what is your opinion on the criminal justice system in canada Uh, Well, I actually don't call it a criminal justice system. I call it a criminal legal system because we've got a long way to go uh, further to be justice, fairness, and equality for far too many in this country. Um, So when I first started working in and around the system, I was one of many who still believed we could reform it. I trained as a teacher, then as a lawyer, and I started working with uh, young people first. And what I saw was, uh, and what I still see, is it's predominantly people who come from working class or, um, you know, economically impoverished backgrounds. It's predominantly uh, Indigenous people and people of colour, and in particular, uh, people of African descent. It's also predominantly the fastest growing prison population is women, uh, most particularly Indigenous women and other racialized women. So as we're having this discussion, 44% of the women serving two years or more in this country are Indigenous, um, and about 10% are Black, and most of them have histories of abuse. Much of um, most of them are struggling to try and make ends meet in a system that has criminally low social assistance rates. Many of them are challenged to try and um, navigate the past trauma of abuse. Um, if they're if they're not given drugs by uh, the medical profession, they may self anesthetize with drugs or alcohol to try and navigate that the those histories of trauma and and, uh, the challenges of economic deprivation. And so we end up seeing a system full of the people who every other system fails. So, uh, and when we look in particular at at Indigenous peoples in this country, of course, we see the long history of first jailing them on reserves, designating certain areas they could only be in. Then, then, uh, you know, once we allowed passes, quote unquote, off the reserves. Then we started to put them in residential schools. We now have more young people in the child welfare system than we did when there were residential schools in this country. And the child welfare system, historically, the same uh, beds that have served as child welfare beds often also serve as, quote unquote, beds within the the youth uh, legal system. And so we see young people criminalized for things that they would never be criminalized for if they were in their own homes or with their families or their communities. And so we see that extrication, the criminalization, and then we also see that being a fast track into the adult system. So when we have, uh, when we look at countries where they have more robust social, economic, and health systems to start with, as well as education, free post-secondary education, you see um, a number of corresponding issues. You have higher standards of living for everybody. You see more equality. You see fewer uh, people being victimized, lower crime rates, and lower incarceration rates. And my view is, why wouldn't we want that? And so those are the sorts of things that I've uh, spent most of my life working on. And when I was approached by people uh, and it was, you know, Indigenous women, it was folks who were already in the Senate, not not 
necessarily senators, but staff who I had come to know through my appearances before different committees, as well as, of course, uh, I shouldn't say of course, but um, for me, the most significant was those who had experienced criminalization and incarceration who really urged me to look at um, the Senate as an option when Trudeau decided when the current prime minister decided to create a new process for the Senate and to, I, you know, I like to think of it as wanting to breathe life into the fact that part of our responsibility is to represent the interests of those who are often aren't represented by elected officials. I actually do have a question. Um, I wanted to mention that my, my father, Ian Harrington, uh, who had experience in the carceral system, was one of the 170 lives lost in May 2020 during BC's overdose crisis. Um, and it was reported by CBC in June 2020 that within the first three months of the lockdown measures put into place to stop the spread of COVID-19, um, a staggering 401 people died from drug overdoses, which is over twice as many as that who had died of COVID-19 at that time. Um, so after witnessing how quickly these lockdown measures were put into place to help stop COVID-19, my question to you is, what measures are being put into place to help decriminalize drugs and regulate a safe supply in order to stop these overdoses? And um, how important is rehabilitation to you? And how are you as a senator implementing in, re, sorry, rehabilitation into your work? Hmm. Well, I'm very sorry, Kayla, to hear about your dad. And uh, that's awful and should never have happened. And those are like so many preventable deaths that we could be addressing. And I, it's part of why I focus on the economic issues and, and that we need to step far you know, earlier into the process to provide the supports that people uh, deserve and need in order to be able to thrive in our communities. And um, so all of that to say, you know, my, my focus for most of my life was on trying to pull people out of those situations and, you know, whether it's prison, and I'm not saying I still don't do that, but and on a personal level, there are many people in our lives who, you know, yeah, we've, we've lost way too many people in this similar way. It sounds like that your dad was lost and I, I am very sorry to hear that and we'll continue to work on that. But I also think we need to lay the groundwork that fewer people are in those positions. And the fact that we have in Vancouver the low, the one of the most uh, the poorest neighborhoods within you know eyesight of one of the richest per capita neighborhoods is is horrendous and so we need to also look at income redistribution not just guaranteed livable income but I you know um, you may not I don't know if you know that this past week um, Senator Gwen Boniface who used to be the head of the OPP in fact she and I were appointed the same day. Um, to the Senate. And the headlines were something like top cop and prison advocates, something, and they were trying to characterize us as completely on opposite sides. Well, the bill she introduced was to decriminalize all um, possession of all drugs. And, you know, a lot of people were surprised because here's the person who used to be, um, you know, in the top position in the OPP arguing this. Well, and in fact, I think all, um, if not all, certainly ma the majority of those in the Senate who are former police officers, um, whether it's Vern White or Larry Campbell, are also of that view. And, um, you know, and, and I was actually looking at this area, whether we should introduce a bill like this. And, and um, instead, I'm supporting that bill and supporting further expansion of those sorts of approaches. 
And looking at examples like what has happened in Portugal, where years ago, um, they decriminalized drugs, but didn't just decriminalize, they ensured that the resources that were going into criminalizing and imprisoning people and keeping people stuck on the streets um, and in addictions, putting that into the kinds of supports that you know, I was just talking about the kinds of supports people need to be able to be in community, whether it's housing, it's uh, training programs, whether it's addiction support programs, whatever the issue is, whether it's past trauma issues that have contributed to those addiction issues. And so I think that's really the way we need to, to be going. And, and one of the challenges is we have we have neglected people so long in this country that the depth and breadth of uh, poverty of um, you know homelessness of addictions is is so acute that we have to take some really brave uh, decisive measures to try and both interrupt what's happening now and to try and ensure that we don't continue on that path for far too many other people and I you know we've yet to see quite frankly a party that's willing to step up. Um, and so those are some of the challenges that, you know, it's odd to see the Senate in some cases taking more progressive positions than our government is. But that's a, you know, there's a, there are a number of us who are very concerned about and will continue to work on these issues. So thank you again. And, and I hope you have many happy memories of your dad. And um, you, you mentioned rehabilitation. Uh, the I don't even use the term rehabilitation. I talk about community integration because rehabilitation implies that you're bringing someone back to where they were before. And when you know that we disproportionately jail those who are most um, who are most on the margins and and the intersections of that marginalization means that I don't want to return people to a situation where they were. I think we have an obligation to improve the situation and provide greater supports. And I'll just, you know, I'm, you're, you guys are so kind bearing with me as I waffle on. And, but, you know, another one of the senators that came to prisons with me, who's now become one of the most ardent advocates for us doing these visits, was a man who's a business guy, had never, ever been in a prison, never thought about it, you know, didn't even, you know, think he had any interest in this issue. He came to a prison and it happened to be one of the prisons for women where I knew a lot of the women. And while we were there, there were two situations, well, there were more than two, but there were two particular situations that I intervened in that as we were driving away from the prison, he said, you know, Kim, why do they call it corrections? And so I started to give a whole long ex explanation about that. And he said, no, no, that's not what I mean. He said, these are people who have not had equal opportunities. So this is him. This is based on, you know, basically, not a whole lot of information, but and one visit to the prison and meeting with women and staff and other. And so he said, he said, these are people who have not had an equal start in life. Um, they, they've done something for which they have been held accountable and the sentence is incarceration. They go to corrections, presumably because the idea is there's they're, that whatever it was that gave rise to them being criminalized is gonna be corrected. He said, but what I saw was and there was one incident where I'd intervene. He said that woman followed all the rules. Everybody agreed she was the quote unquote model prisoner. She'd done everything according to the rules. And then she she asks for something. The first time she ever asks for something, and it was actually to go to her dad's funeral. And she asks and they say no, she can do a FaceTime 
you know, they could do a FaceTime and they'd give her access to that. And she didn't come to me. Other women who knew me came to me and said, you know, this is wrong. Why can't she go, you know, and, and she was, you know, you can imagine uh, she was, uh, you know, uh, crying and, and very emotional and, and she said, I don't want to get in trouble. And I said, no, no, you're entitled to this. If you're okay, I'll raise it. So we raise, and long and the short is, you know, she got to go to the, the, her dad's funeral, which was, you know, small comfort after she wasn't allowed to go see him when he was sick, which she was also entitled to do, but I didn't know about that. And, you know, that's, so that was one incident. Then we went to the max unit and a woman I've known for a long time who has significant mental health issues, indigenous and was, um, you know, threatening to harm herself very seriously, was refusing to lock up. And uh, when she saw me said, I'll talk to, you know, to Kim. And so I went in into the unit and talked to her and, and, you know, basically she was wanting to get a transfer out. And, and so his, he said, you know, here's someone who followed all the rules. She asked for something. She doesn't get it. Here's someone else who, um, whether she can or cannot, um, because the staff had been explaining to him while I was in talking to her, that this is a woman who had some intellectual as well as mental and intellectual disabilities, and that, you know, she never followed the rules, she always created a ruckus, and that's how she got what she wanted. And so his assessment was, if you follow the rules and do everything you're told, you don't necessarily get what you need. If you don't follow the rules, and but create a, you know, um, a issue for them and cause them more problems, you might get what you need. And he said, how does that teach anybody anything but like it's survival of, you know, you just figure out how to survive. It doesn't change any behavior. It doesn't change any attitudes about, uh, you know, the system. It doesn't assist people when they get out. And no wonder people, you know, and his assessment was no wonder, you know, so many people probably get out. And not only have they not had the issues dealt with that you know, may have been prevalent when they came there in the first place, but there's no support to actually uh, do better when they get out. And so, you know, does it really correct or does it just, is it like a a worsening uh, system that we go in and make people worse? And and it's, I use that example because it made me really reflect that here's someone who had no exposure and saw it instantly. And in fact, since then, he says, you know, he's been advocating we do surprise visits to the prisons and has come on another um, couple of visits before COVID hit. And I said, you know, I said, I advocated, you know, a number of them wanted to do surprise visits to corrections because we can rock up and we're supposed to be provided access. And I said, no, we don't have to do surprise visits. I want you to see what happens when they know we're coming. They have advance notice. And sure enough, the same issues, you know, um, we go in, we meet with, you know, we might get the, the, the same performative stuff we hear when you have someone come before uh, to testify or press releases, that sort of thing. And to a senator, everyone saw the hypocrisy of we'd go in, there'd be, you know, everything might be freshly washed and painted. Oftentimes we could smell fresh paint and you'd get the, you know, the presentation. All we had to do was walk into the prison and start to talk to prisoners and staff and hear the same sorts of issues from people. And so all of that to say that I think the more, you know, I'm, I'm repeating myself now, but the more we can open up these systems, we show that in fact, we have to do far more than just um, dress them up or add some programs. We have to actually fundamentally rethink who 
um, is criminalized, why, and who benefits from the way we, we uh, you know, the way we administer or continue this system. And certainly, um, if your interest is public safety, we're not achieving it. If your interest is in rehabilitation, we're not achieving it. If your interest is in deterring other people, we're not achieving it. And so, you know, all of the principles of sentencing that exist for why um, prison, you know, prison sentences even exist, it, it, it doesn't even have to be hugely researched, but just look at the evidence and then determine, are we meeting these principles? And I think time after time, we see that that's not true. One of the other challenges is getting people in the system, um, lawyers and uh, you know, social workers, people who work in the system to feel comfortable challenging the system. I can't tell you how many times I've been told if we do that, our access will be denied. Well, I, you know, yes, that's true. I've had that happen many times, but if enough people stand up to it, it will change. But the problem has been right from when I was working with young people to when the time I was appointed, um, oftentimes people will come together and then they'll be picked off one by one to, you know, they'll get a job or they'll get a contract or there'll be some incentive to um, pick them off. And this is not a criticism of the individuals or the organizations, but I do think there needs to be some ability to stand collectively together to face that system and say, you know, the, you know, we all know it's not working. Why aren't we trying some very different things that could work and could be fundamentally different. And if ever you're interested, for instance, when the segregation bill was um, coming forth, I asked the parliamentary budget officer to cost out some options, some alternatives to segregation. They did that and they were way less expensive than the money they devoted that has failed in this current. So there's lots of, sorry, I've got lots of ideas, but um, obviously no, I've got lots ideas. of work still to do. <laughs> it's wonderful to hear all the ideas like, um, but like even talking back to like talking about how like you view instead of talking about like rehabilitation as like integrative like community like building or um like just talking about all these different issues with the current system and saying like if we even like put in like um substitutes for like segregation like you're saying that would actually be cheaper for the government. Um, what do you think is the reason then that the government is so like hard pressed to be like we're not changing how we're operating like do you think there is like one driving factor for why there is so much resistance to the lack of change yeah i mean you may know that i've got two private bills before the government right now one s207 would allow judges discretion to not impose mandatory minimum penalties it wasn't an original thought erwin kotler who was the minister of justice at one point and implemented a number of mandatory minimum penalties as a uh, as a liberal justice minister first proposed it, and the other one is uh, a bill to allow um, convictions to expire, so not requiring people to have to apply for a record suspension or a pardon or anything, it just to have them can expire. And um, the reason I introduced them is I actually don't support private members' bills in principle um, because too often they're not well thought out. They are not well researched. They're, and in this case, um, you know, 
I, I accept the criticism that they should be government bills. The problem was the first 18 months that I was in the Senate, I worked with the government to try and put forward these ideas that were part of their election platform. Um, but it became clear that they were afraid that they would be uh, looked at as soft on crime and not concerned about public safety. And that's really my end, you know, my end assessment is the same assessment I had you know, when I was in the community and uh, working for nonprofits doing this work is that um, people are afraid to look like they're not taking public safety seriously. And, and the reality is, even though all the evidence shows what we're doing isn't creating greater public safety or security or, you know, assisting those who have been victimized, the reality is um, it, you know, it's a knee-jerk response uh, that people think, well, and I have to confess, I was raised a working class kid. I, I would have said when I started doing this work, you do the crime, you do the time, and the law applies equally to everyone. Of course, that's not true. And now, when, or not now, but when I taught prison law and, and was teaching at some of the at University of Ottawa Law School and Dalhousie and Saskatchewan, um, I often use a quote from uh, 17th century, I think it's 17th century. And anyway, the name is Anatole France who is a poet and a philosopher and a writer in France, in the country France. And the quote goes something like this, the law applies equally to the rich and the poor, neither is permitted to steal bread or sleep under bridges. Well, who, who's more likely to be in a situation? I use that example because it's, you know, even people who don't want to think much about this can get it then. Like, yeah, of course, if those are the laws, who's gonna be more likely to be impacted by them? It's not gonna be wealthy people. It's not going to be people, people who have homes and supports. And so that's, um, you know, that those are some of the realities and the, the issues that we need to continue to work on. And I wish I knew the answer to, how, you know, I think we need some politicians um, who are being elected, who are willing to stand up to this. And I think, you know, I, I just recently had a chance to have a conversation with Annamie Paul. And it's a shame there's only three MPs with the, from the Green Party because her views, she, she supports these views. Um, and so, you know, the, the reality is those who have these views aren't ten, don't tend to be well represented among elected officials. And I think we have to do more work uh, like you're doing, you know, this podcast is one way to ensure people have more accurate information that the story, the information gets out there about what is actually happening on the ground. And so, um, you know, I think lots of people think, oh, yeah, you know, if we send someone to jail, it solves the problem. And don't think one about what happens there, what happens when they get out, because aside from 17 men in this country who have been sentenced to multiple life sentences, at least in, in legally and in theory, everybody who goes to jail has an opportunity to work towards getting out of jail. And I say legally and in theory that, of course, there are some people who will likely never be released, but there are, you know, due to whether, you know, the, the stages at which they were or the, um, the extent to which they have, uh, you know, offended the, the public um, sense of safety and and so but those are very that's a very very small number of people and and you know even in those situations i've spent my life trying to get to know people not just to know them but to try and understand what were the circumstances even some people who have done some pretty awful things and most of us are capable of doing awful things i often use the example again with students that if 
if you if you wrote down every single thing you've ever done wrong in your life and put it in a file you know the things that people some people know about some maybe some people don't know about but you put it in a file and you gave that to someone whether it's someone you were interested in being having a relationship or a friendship with whether it was a school you wanted to apply to or an employer you wanted to apply to for a job how many of us think that we would actually that someone would engage with us if we wrote down every negative thing but that's essentially what happens it used to happen in school systems as well uh, but that's essentially what happens for anybody who comes within the control of the state whether it's child welfare um, the youth system or the adult system they're basically files of everything negative about that person and if you know so that's what defines those individuals and so i've spent most of my life trying to uh, figure out okay yes you know even if you did this one thing that was really you know caused a lot of harm to one or more people why like what was that? Not because I'm like, I want to know for some just, uh, but usually, you know, all, you know, to a person, there's always a backdrop that gave rise to that. Not to excuse bad behavior, not to excuse harmful behavior, but to actually understand how do we prevent other people from being in those positions? How do we, as best we can, try and remedy this so that um, it's, you're not, continuing to be in this situation. And, and I spent, you may know from, if you've read some of the background work, I spent a lot of time working in a voluntary capacity, mostly with women and children escaping violence. And, you know, the, we need to do a lot to provide supports and we need to do a lot to ensure that we take seriously that kind of violence. We don't really, we say we do, but we, you know, there's been the Me Too and there's been a few high profile folks. Uh, but, you know, if we took seriously providing supports and safety and um, modeling the behavior we want others to, you know, how we want people to behave, we'd see far fewer people victimized, far fewer people criminalized, far fewer people in institutionalized in whatever form. Um, and so, you know, when I worked with people who were being victimized, um, you, you know, I, the two main questions they wanted to know was not how long is someone going to get sentenced, but why was it me? Or why was it my loved one if it was, if it was someone who was murdered, or whose family member was murdered? Uh, you know, why? And, and second question is, how do we stop it from happening again? How do we prevent it? Now, usually the only thing the system offers is let's like lock them up forever, not let's like dial back and figure out how we actually try and prevent this. My Both of my uh, kids went into prisons a lot with me. And, and as I've been trying, sometimes when I'm asked to talk about the changes we've seen in the system, I describe how it you know, how Michael might see it and how Madison might see it. And at the age of about, I think, I'm trying to remember if she was six or eight. I should, she'll probably remember. But um, there was a time where she stopped. She said she never wanted to go back into jail. And it wasn't the people inside she was afraid of. She became afraid of the staff, of the guards. And it was after one particular instance where she was coming in with me and she heard some, you know, and sometimes you become not insensitive to it, but it just rolls off. Like it's, it's, 
you know, it's not worth raising a ruckus about. Anyway, in this context, um, some staff were saying, you know, basically, who the hell is she to, about me? And, you know, what's she doing? And, you know, so this unit is supposed to go out for a yard. Well, they can go at, you know, F themselves. I need a break. And, and when we got to the unit, it was a unit of women within a unit, a larger prison that was mostly men. And when we got to the unit, she ran into the, the area where the women were and didn't want to go, didn't want to leave again. <laughs> and, and after we left the prison that day, she, she said, mommy, do I, can I not ever have to go again? And of course I said, of course not. I mean, she has since come back, but um, you know, that, that was such a different experience for her. Anyway, sorry, I'm waffling on again. I'll be quiet now. I think I went, well, I know I went way off what your question was. So pull me back <laughs> or I'll pull myself back. It's not your responsibility. You made a lot of good points though when you were waffling off, don't worry. <laughs> you didn't miss anything. It all made sense in context. Um, we talked a little bit about how, uh, like if, if there's so many like guards that are treating people like that and like there's there's such a unanimous opinion that like these these jails aren't working and the system isn't helping anybody um i have a question from aaron doyle from cpep he wanted to know with that in mind um how do you feel about the um new 235 bed prison being built in kemptville i'm not sure if you have any like knowledge of that so i can give you like a background but in August 2020, the Ontario government announced that it was going to build a new 235-bed prison for pr provincially sentenced men and women in the town of Kempville outside of Ottawa. Um, and mm -hmm. although there's no price tag for the prison, CPEP estimated that it would cost at least a quarter of a billion dollars to build. And spokespeople for the ministry say that this new institution will be transformational and provide rehabilitation opportunities in a way that these other institutions haven't um, and have failed to do. Um, but most of the staff at the Kempville prison will just be staff that was transferred from the Ottawa Carleton Detention Center. Um, mm -hmm. And the ministry hasn't given any justification for increasing prison capacities and um, beyond citing system pressures. Um, so what, what, what is your view on this? And do you think that's okay that they're building this? No, of course not. In fact, um, I don't know where they are now, but uh, just after I was appointed, um, Justin Pichet came in and we did some filming in the Senate about, you know, the need to not build more prisons, but to reinvest, you know, decarcerate and reinvest those resources in the community. And, um, and so, you know, part of the reason I worked in conjunction with the National Anti-Poverty Organization, it now goes by another name, uh, but still, you know, working with Housing First folks and some of the folks doing uh, the work, the anti-poverty work is exactly that, that we need to be looking at um, making linkages and working in alliance with the groups that have been doing, you know, food security, um, housing strategies, homelessness strategies, because there's a there's a great momentum there to do something very different if we can all work co collectively. And I, I don't know many people who think building a new prison is going to solve that. Um, you know, it's, it, we should actually be looking at allocating those resources elsewhere. And, you know, in, in the, in terms of staff, one of the things that, um, and it, it doesn't matter, you know, people have been saying, oh, we should have healthcare administered by pro provincial health authorities. If it's still in a jail, 
it will be it will become tainted by that institution those institutional policies i have yet to see someone go into a prison um well i've seen lots of people who have done work you know working with organizations you know getting great education going in intending to change the system from within and some might argue you know i'm foolishly trying to do that now and i accept fully that criticism and if it you know if it continues on that you know i don't see much change those who know me know i'll probably if i don't cark it before um try and figure out some other way to do this but for now trying to get you know the raise the momentum is important but in terms of in the prison system um most people who go in wanting to make change, two things either happen. They quit because they realize they can't, that there's such tremendous pressure to conform uh, and do things the way the prison wants you to uh, or the system in, imposes, or, or they conform. So, you know, it's, it's a, a huge challenge. And one of the things, it's why I say, I always, you know, say to folks, you know, I won't judge you if you're going to be in there, you know, at least if you're not doing all of the negative things, make sure that information is getting out. And I think there are many people working within the prison who agree that there shouldn't be expansion, that they should actually be investing in the community. It's not even short-term thinking. It's, well, I guess it's short-term thinking to say, you know, we're having problems with overcrowding. We'll try and build a new prison and we'll say we're going to um, dress it up. And, you know, you you may have heard me say before that even if you put people in the the penthouse of the Chateau Laurier, uh, some some people might think that's okay for a while. But when you were, you know, don't allow people to actually be in the community to you know respond to the issues that whether they've created or have been created around them to resolve those issues, um, and you're never able to leave. It doesn't matter how pretty uh, the prison is; it's not you know it's, it's it's still a prison. So you definitely think that like prisons are like a short term fix, from like what I'm understanding and like obviously like throughout your life you've been doing a lot of amazing work trying to change the system do you think that within your lifetime our lifetime that realistically could this system be changed um well i actually don't see prisons even as a short-term fix i think um they were an experiment brought in when we stopped you know killing people or sending them to the other side of the world you know australia was a big prison colony. And so I think we have to face that it's, it's a failed experiment, that it's not an effective way to uh, deal with, or as my colleague would say, correct behavior you want to see changed. And so I think we have to fundamentally rethink. And those of us working within, and I, I, I count myself, even though I'm out, like I still, you know, in fact, this morning I was sending information to a lawyer who's doing an appeal. I still think we're still trying to pull the people out as we go. Of course, we all want to do that. But we also have to band together with other like-minded folks who are working at issues that don't necessarily look the same. So when I say food security and food insecurity and clean water, some people working in prison issues say, well, you know, what does that have to do? Well, 
if we work, those are equality issues that if we work together to address the, the intersectional issues that give rise to folks being in more precarious situations where they're more likely to be victimized and or criminalized. And, you know, I use the situation of Indigenous women as the, as the, the intersection, the most profound intersection of that. The Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Inquiry talked about getting rid of mandatory minimum penalties, talked about decarcerating, talked about the need for guaranteed livable income and, and all the security issues because they recognize that the same issues that give rise to Indigenous women being more likely to be disappeared, murdered, uh, and homeless in this country are also the same issues that give rise to Indigenous women being the one of the fastest growing prison populations. So I think we do have to work on all of those issues. And I, I live with the constant hope. I probably would stop doing this if I didn't have hope that this could happen. I don't know what, um, you know, some people say it's going to be incremental change and, and that we're already seeing it. Maybe I, you know, I certainly am. I also, you know, elders that I've worked with have long told me as well as my own parents that I have to learn patience. Well, I'm 61 now and I'm, you know, getting short on time as well as patience again. And so I do think we can continue to work on it. An example is, you know, 20 years ago, nobody thought that putting people in solitary confinement cages was a problem. Now it's virtually internationally recognized that's a problem. We got rid of cages for animals a long time ago in zoos and places. And I'm not in any way suggesting there's a parallel for people. But if we could see the inhumanity of it for animals, other sentient beings, how can we not see the inhumanity of it for people? And so I do think there's a growing awareness. And the more people know about what's happening inside, um, you know, the the other side of mass incarceration is it impacts so many people now that part of it is taking, you know, trying to help as you guys are doing, remove some of the stigma and putting the voices, the first voices of people who have lived this experience forward, but also the, the engagement so that it's not just, you know, I had um, a woman, an amazing woman, Gail Horry, who was serving a life sentence was isolated in a men's prison when I first met her. I knew of her long before I met her, she because she wrote a lot. And she said to me the first time I met her, it is just as disrespectful to parrot what I say as it is to ignore me. And I think we haven't done the critical engagement as well as we could, not just with, as I mentioned, you know, groups working on homelessness and indigenous rights and land sovereignty and all, you know, and water sovereignty, but we also um, need to be sharing the information in a way that ups the game totally, ups the, the, the demands totally. And so sometimes when we make room for voices of those with lived experience, and I agree with the, you know, the, the call for nothing um, about us without us, but what, what Gail, it took me a, a while to understand what she was saying, but what she was saying was, you have information, I have information. Let's combine our efforts and we actually come up with a better solution if we challenge each other and we have the respect enough that I'm comfortable challenging, in she was saying to me, she was comfortable enough challenging me and I was comfortable to challenge her. So for instance, you know, the organization, when I was with EFRI, we came up completely against maximum security. Well, many of the women who were part of that group coming out with that position initially started saying, 
you can't get rid of maximum security. You should see me when I'm hopped up on, you know, meth or whatever. And, you know, we challenged, we had night, many long nights of going back and forth. Well, you know, what about if this, what about, and, and the end result was a much stronger position because we had those with lived experience, but also those who had spent lifetimes trying to push the systems in other ways. And, and so, and, you know, from, anti-poverty to all, all the way through. And so I think that's vitally important. So I commend you for what you guys are doing on this very issue now through this podcast, but also through your studies and through the work you're doing and the ongoing leadership that you're demonstrating. And I wish at your ages, I had known half the things you know, because maybe I would have been more effective. Thank you everyone for listening to Collect Calls, CPEP's podcast. Please be aware of the counseling resources in the description. We would like to credit Aaron from CPEP, Philip Primo from Carlton's podcast, Deborah Connors, the professor from sociology class, and Jacqueline Dompolsky, the TA and group leader. All of these people have helped our team and podcast greatly. Please listen to our other episodes to hear from other formerly incarcerated individuals and their family members. Our episodes are unique and give people a chance to voice their experiences and opinions. For more information about CPEP, please look at the links in the description.